Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We're presented by The Athletic. I've got a beautiful two-part episode scheduled for you today. I've already recorded the second part. It's going to be a really fun interview with Sam Merrill, who is, for my money, a top 50 prospect in the 2020 NBA draft. We talked about uh, some of the more interesting aspects of his life, such as being a 24-year-old NBA draft prospect, going to Nicaragua on a LDS mission, and uh, talking about his game as kind of a sniper that can do a little bit more uh, as a shooter and as a ball handler. But before we get there, we've got good friend of the program, Mike Pina here. Mike, the host of the Open Floor Podcast, the host of the Winning Plays Podcast. How you doing, man? I mean, I'm great, but I feel bad for your listeners as kind of the opening act for what sounds like a, a much more interesting interview that you've had earlier today. Uh, Merrill's the best, but I have full confidence that you can match that because <laughs> we've got a really, really great little podcast that we're going to do today. I asked Mike over the weekend to send me ten, to send me five names of guys that are going to, or at least have potential to, swing the NBA title race. Not all of these guys are stars. Obviously, the guys like LeBron James, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Kawhi Leonard, these guys are going to be the ones who have the biggest part to play in the title race. But there are a lot of guys kind of under the radar, some of those uh, you know, elite to sub-elite players, some guys that are just straight-up role players that uh, we don't necessarily know what we're going to get from them. Once the playoffs start. So, Mike, uh, whenever I sent you this idea, what kind of went through your mind initially? Well, my first thing was to look at teams that I actually thought could win the championship, which is probably five, maybe six teams right now, uh, depending on what day you ask me. And then from there, I had basically the same mentality that you just described, where you got to forget about the superstars uh, even though I don't want to spoil my list, but I might have one <laughs> on my list. Um, and you, you have two at, like straight up all stars on your list. Yeah, that is true. Although one of yeah, one of them is definitely better than the other. But yes, um, they. But yeah, basically, I wanted to look at more role players and role players who have. Uh, high variance, so just like we don't really know what we're going to get out of them, and yeah, it's it's going to be a fun conversation. I'm looking forward to it. So yeah, I had the same mentality you did. I wanted to uh, try to come up with the guys that I don't necessarily have a great feel for what they're going to do in the playoffs as much as anything. It's not necessarily that these guys are the best players. It's not necessarily that these guys are even the most interesting players that I'm most looking forward to watching on these teams. It's simply just the guys that I think can really change things for their team if things kind of break right. And I think we actually got uh, players on nine separate teams, which I felt was really, really interesting. So let's just kind of dive in. I'll I'll give you the floor on your first guy. Sure. So uh, the first player who actually popped into my head when I got your DM was Eric Gordon of the Houston Rockets. And Eric Gordon has kind of always been my guy. Like I'm <laughs> consistently driving or sitting shotgun on his bandwagon. And this has not been the greatest year to be in that position. He's been, uh, he's missed quite a bit of time with a knee injury off and on. 
and his numbers are just atrocious. Uh, shooting numbers are really down, and uh, he hasn't really been able to establish himself in lineups with uh, Harden and Westbrook and try to figure out what the chemistry is going to be between all those guys because they're all score-first players who have an ability to take it off the bounce, attack the rim, shoot threes. Uh, And so, yeah, I just – when I look at Eric Gordon, he's just so critical to this experiment that they're they're deploying with – five players who are below the rim, or I should say five players who are not traditional centers. And, uh, and yeah, so uh, if, if Eric Gordon can look like he did, say, two years ago in the playoffs, then I just think that the Houston Rockets are going to have an offense that is incredibly difficult to stop. And if he's able to kind of hold up physically on the defensive end, then I, I just I, I see a five-man closing lineup that is going to be one of the most difficult to match up with in the entire NBA. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up Gordon because I agree with you. I think that what he can do really does kind of unlock a lot for them. The thing that I like that's kind of gone underrated about what Houston is building in regard to this like super small ball lineup is that they have prioritized getting guys that are very comfortable, despite being traditional guards, of defending up the lineup. Like James Harden, you know, much has been made over the years of the fact that, honestly, he's probably a little bit better defending fours than he is defending straight up on the perimeter. Russell Westbrook is so big and explosive and strong that he doesn't really have a problem guarding up the lineup. P.J. Tucker, obviously, has no problems guarding up the lineup. Robert Covington is a guy that has just been like kind of a help defense menace uh, throughout the course of his career, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how they choose to – divvy up the center matchup between him and P.J. Tucker because, you know, if they run into Denver, for instance, like I, I looked at the matchup numbers with him and Nikola Jokic, P.J. Tucker, that is, and Jokic has just consistently kind of wrecked him over the last two years. And then yeah. Gordon is another guy that I think goes kind of underrated in his ability to move up the lineup and defend threes pretty regularly. Like he is a strong 215, 220 pound guy that can really actually deal with those players due to his length and due to his strength. So uh, then getting him in the lineup and getting his offensive versatility, uh, if he's able to bring a level of efficiency that we haven't seen from him, uh, it really does unlock everything that they're trying to do because it allows them to not necessarily have to play uh, Daniel House, who's been fine this year. Like, I think that Daniel House has been probably even better than what Rockets fans and, frankly, the Rockets front office could have expected, right? But if they can close with a lineup of Harden, Westbrook, Gordon, P.J. Tucker, and Covington, that makes them a little bit more dangerous to me than if Daniel House is out there. For sure. And with Gordon, to me, it kind of just goes back to whether or not he's making the, the tough threes that he's launching. Because reputationally around the league, you know, he's going to space the floor. No defender is going to let Eric Gordon take a wide open three. That's just yep. not in the game plan. But at the end of the day, you've got to hit those shots. And so when Harden drives and he kicks and Gordon has you know, open opportunities, like, is he going to knock them down? And that's kind of the big question here. And so 
Uh, to your point also about, you know, how he defends up positions, you know, he's got that low, great low center of gravity. What I'm a little bit more, he's had that for quite a bit of time going back to, you know, those series against the Warriors where he really, I thought, held him up incredibly well in the defensive end. But what kind of worries me a little bit is just how he's going to move laterally. You know, he said mm-hmm. that he's not giving his knee a second thought and that his knee is okay. I just, I want to see it on the court in NBA action before I am 100.1% all in on Eric and the ability to defend laterally. Cause when you're, when you're small, it's, it's obviously helpful to be able to be strong enough to guard bigger players down low on the block without getting destroyed. But so much of having switchy versatile defenders is an ability to keep your guy in front of you. Cause if you're beat off the bounce, all of a sudden you're either giving up a layup or you're giving up an open corner three. Um, and or you're contesting so, from behind, which is just harder to do when you're smaller like that than guarding right, up the exactly. lineup. Yeah. Great point. Uh, so, so that's a, a little bit of a concern with me with Gordon. And then also we just haven't seen the Gordon Westbrook Harden, uh, Covington Tucker lineup basically at all because of various injuries and then obviously the sample with Covington is low because he was traded later in the season so if those are your five best players and they haven't played a ton I, I you know I am optimistic that it can work because on paper it makes sense but we've got to kind of see it in action so at the end of each of these kind of guys that we bring up, I'll ask you the question, what is this team ceiling if they get the best version of this player? If the Rockets get the best version of Eric Gordon, what do you think their ceiling is? 16-0 and playoff run. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I think that... <laughs> I'm so worried for a second. <laughs> I do think just because I, I picked the Rockets to win the championship and I'm not really ready to back off that prediction... So uh, it would be silly of me to say that they could not win at all if Eric Gordon played his very best. So I'm going to go with they can win the championship. So I think I agree with you if he's playing his absolute best and he's averaging 15 a night and able to guard up and down the lineup. I do worry that no team was hurt more. The more I think about it, I think no team was hurt more by the stoppage than the Rockets because – they kind of were taking everyone by surprise who didn't have any tape on this super small ball lineup. Obviously, within playoff series, you're going to be able to get more and more tape the longer the series goes. And I think that it's going to be a battle every time the Rockets are in a playoff series just because their variance in terms of shooting is going to be super high. But I worry that teams getting four months to like really prepare for how to deal with some of the looks that this small ball lineup presents uh, puts the Rockets at a disadvantage that they might not have had if they were just able to fly by the seat of their pants into the playoffs prior to the stoppage. So I think I agree with you that I think that they can win the title if he is giving their best, but I would say um, more than that, I think they present a very interesting uh, potential foil to the Lakers. And if you told me they beat the Lakers, it wouldn't totally stun me and then went to the conference finals. I think that's a more reasonable um, ceiling outcome for the Rockets. Let's uh, let's move to another guard named Eric, who was ostensibly drafted by the Clippers. Uh, Eric Bledsoe is going to be my first pick for this 
topic. And to me, the reason I picked Eric was because we've seen his playoff struggles over the course of the last few years. Uh, last season, for instance, he shot 41% from the field, 24% from three, 70% from the line, uh, was not nearly as effective. Uh, teams simply just kind of sagged off of him regularly and uh, made him, I don't want to say unplayable offensively, but when he was out there, he was a genuine offensive liability. The defense is going to be there. He is one of the best defensive guards in the NBA. He's a perfect fit for their scheme because of the ability to fight over and around screens, to contest from behind. But I worry about what happens with the Bucks if they don't get a good version of Eric Bledsoe. If they get a good version of Bledsoe, I mean, they're coming out of the East. I don't really even think there's a question that they're coming out of the East if Eric Bledsoe plays well. But if he doesn't, things really open up in the Eastern Conference, I think. Yeah. Um, with Bledsoe, it's it's so much like the playoff struggles that you mentioned are his identity to me, way more so than all of the success that he's had over the past few regular seasons. And, like, when you consistently fall apart when the lights are shining brightest, it's just really difficult for me to think that he's going to hold up through however many playoff rounds Milwaukee uh, goes through. And, I mean, he's just someone who, if you just look at his numbers, they're pretty – I mean, they're pretty on par this year from where they were last year during the regular season. And then the shot just completely evaporated in the playoffs is outside shot. So I just I can't get there with the confidence and believing that he's someone who's going to be reliable. I think their investment in terms of playing time with the likes of Dante DiVincenzo and someone like George Hill are really going to be more so what <clears throat> takes them over the top if they make it over the top. And then you add in the fact that Bledsoe tested positive for COVID-19 and I don't believe we know if he's in Orlando yet. Last I heard was, th I think there was a, a report three days ago that he was not yet with the team. So the fact that the teams are practicing now and trying to get on the same page, uh, like every every practice, every minute together really matters now. They haven't, they've been apart for four months, which is just unprecedented for their bodies and their minds. So to reestablish the chemistry that they had that was so successful during the regular season before it was suspended, I, I think that you've got to kind of factor in him not being around as a negative deterrent. So can I make a case otherwise? I don't even think you're wrong to say that, and I think you're very smart to bring it up. But I do think that Milwaukee, I would be much more concerned if it was a different team. Milwaukee has been operating within this scheme and within this uh, structure under Mike Budenholzer with largely the same players for the last mm -hmm. two years. Like we can yeah. say that Wes Matthews got in uh, this off season and Marvin Williams got in uh, 11 games prior to the fact that the season got suspended. But I'm a little bit less worried about Milwaukee building chemistry because I would imagine that they have more chemistry artificially than just about every other team in the NBA does. Uh, just due to the continuity that they've had over the course of the last few years. And, you know, particularly this got brought up with Dave Dufour on my last podcast. Uh, we kind of think that offense is going to be the prevailing theme early on in the 
uh, seeding games. I kind of just feel like Milwaukee's defensive structure is so strong, so solid, so uh, well-built and well-crafted and well-executed by this group that we're going to see them as one of the few teams that is really ready to defend coming into this thing. And that, I think, is going to give them a bit of a leg up. And I'm not as worried about Bledsoe getting back in for them because they're not really fighting for anything seeding-wise. Like, they are, I believe, seven games ahead of the Toronto Raptors. They would have to literally lose out, and Toronto would have to win out to lose control of the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. So, Which means nothing. I No, it doesn't, I guess. Like, you might have to play uh, – Boston versus potentially getting Philadelphia in the second round, which, I I mean, maybe Milwaukee would like that. I don't know, Uh, depending on how Philadelphia looks, which is a total fucking crapshoot every single time they take the court even. So I'm intrigued by the idea of them not necessarily needing as much to get going again as maybe some other teams. I think your point about defensive continuity is – uh, really well made, and it's one of the reasons why uh, I think I'm a little higher on the Denver Nuggets than a lot of people because their starting five has just played so many minutes together, and they're so complimentary yeah. on the defensive end. And if everybody's healthy, i.e. Paul Millsap, they are incredibly difficult to score on. They just they rotate, they communicate so well. Um, so when you have been in the same scheme and the same system for as long as so many of these figures in Milwaukee have, uh, it does certainly give you a leg up on the competition, whether or not your threes are falling or uh, or whatever is going wrong on the offensive end. Like They'll be able to lean on their defense more so than just about any team. I mean, defense is just going to be very critical, particularly in that first ramp up in the first eight games. You know, let's just move to Denver. I think that you and I would both agree that Milwaukee's ceiling is, you know, very clearly winning the title if they get good Bledsoe, right? Like we don't. Yeah, I like given the fact they've been the best team in the league all year. They have the best player uh, in the NBA this season, at least in Giannis Antetokounmpo. I think that uh, he'd be the third guy that I would pick if I was building a roster for the playoffs. Uh, But. Nonetheless, I would expect that they're going to have a good shot to win the title. Uh, One guy that I picked was Jamal Murray. Uh, I I find Jamal Murray to be exceptionally important in this little ramp-up even, uh, in the seeding games, in uh, what Denver can do in the playoffs offensively because they've been kind of like sneakily – I don't want to say they've been hit or miss offensively, but – They've been a little bit more, for a team that has been so predicated upon offense over the course of the last few years, they've been a lot more balanced this year, and it's in part because their defense has gotten a little bit better, but it's also in part because their offense has been just a little bit all over the map, and I think that Murray has been a significant reason why that's been the case. Uh, He simply has just not shot it as well from distance this year. Uh, He has been better finishing inside. I think that he's made like genuine strides in regard to his craft finishing around the basket. Uh, I would imagine, um, I don't have the numbers up in front of me, but just, you know, uh, anecdotally, I I guess is the way to put it. I I would 
kind of think that his mid-range shooting is down a little bit this year. He's not taking as many of them this year, it seems like, which is uh, a big, important thing for him. He needs to be the Jamal Murray that we saw in the playoffs last season. Uh, over the course of the second half of that series against the San Antonio Spurs, starting in game four, whenever he dropped 24 points and was the driving force for them, going all the way through to the Portland series, where he shot 43% from the field, uh, averaged 23 points a night, and generally looked like a much bigger threat than what I think he's looked like throughout the course of this season. So uh, you brought up the Nuggets. I will uh, let you go back to your thoughts on the Nuggets here, and particularly Jamal Murray. Yeah, Murray kind of falls in that subcategory to me of really intriguing young players who – could honestly just come out and have already made another, like, mini leap. So, like, him, Donovan Mitchell, there's a few others, Jalen Brown, um, players who are earlier on in their careers who uh, just – I I cite the the time off, which I really can't overemphasize, and how this is sort of like the beginning of their fourth season, and mentally they might even be approaching it that way. It's just, it's really difficult, or their bodies might be approaching it that way. It's just really difficult to know what exactly is going to happen. So Murray's really interesting. I mean, statistically, he was basically almost perfectly static from year three to year four in a lot of major categories. Uh, and even, like, just his on-off numbers, which is really kind of bizarre. But you bring up the uh, the playoff performance from last year, and honestly, like, I think we would talk way more about those back-to-back 34-point games that he had against Portland uh, if Denver won that series. They just kind of, like, forgotten yeah. and got washed away. But he was, he was like, a star uh, uh, on an incredibly important stage uh, in those games. And he took a lot of really difficult shots, made them, made the game look very easy. I believe he was, what was he, what is he, like 23 now? He was 22 then, something like that. Yep. So, you know, on one hand, I'm weary of the fact that his efficiency didn't go up really a little bit, but not really that much. His per-game numbers didn't really go up. Uh, he did get smarter, I think, as a defender and was seen as a liability in the first few years of his of his career, and this season was kind of uh, way more aggressive in their system, which is one of the more aggressive systems in the league. Yep. And, yeah, I, I like Murray a lot. I, I You know, there's a possibility he makes this little mini leap I'm referring to, but uh, I just don't know if it's going to happen. Yeah, and... If he doesn't make this mini leap, then Denver is somewhat reliant. Yeah, I mean, now they're somewhat reliant on Michael Porter making a leap. And on, I mean, they're talking up Bull Bull right now. Like, I don't know why they are doing this. Like, the the hype machine is behind Bull Bull right now. They're talking about him playing small forward in these, like, inner. scrimmages these three scrimmage games that they're going to do i know it's in part because like they have some guys that aren't yet in orlando Orlando. right but i mean come on guys like why why are we hyping global let's let's just chill they have a chance to actually like win a title this year maybe if things really broke right um yeah like and if michael porter can hold down that four spot and give them 25 minutes a night off the bench i think that'd be really important if jeremy grant can actually really lock down some of the key scoring wings 
that he's going to be assigned to guard because of his athleticism and length. That's going to be really important to them. Denver actually has a team filled with these kind of swing guys that we're talking about here uh, in regard to how they're going to perform in the playoffs being an open question. I picked Murray because I think that he's the most important and obviously the biggest name out of that group that isn't Nikola Jokic. But I mean, you could say similar things about a lot of the guys on this team being very real swing players. Gary Harris figuring out how to shoot again would be essential to this team figuring things out. Yeah, Gary Gary Harris. Uh, he was hitting the, the three ball a little bit better before the season went into a hiatus. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, no. I mean, to your point, someone like uh, Will Barton stepping up and being a little bit more consistent offensively um, and making smarter decisions would do wonders for this team. I Even if – I mean, I'm going to answer the question before you even ask it. Like, yeah. even if – Jamal Murray did make this little mini leap or a major leap or whatever and asserted himself as one of the better point guards in the Western Conference. I still, there's just something about Denver that I just can't imagine them winning the championship yet. And that's probably because I think ultimately they're the best version of what they are in this era is Michael Porter Jr. as their second best player. And that's obviously a couple years away from happening. Yeah, and that's if he gets there still. Like, we still have a long way to go until Porter gets there. Like, we were – we saw a flash for a month, basically. And other than that, he was either not really playing due to rotation decisions by Mike Malone or, you know, kind of recovering from – what did he – he sprained something, if I remember correctly, uh, in the lower half of his body. And, like, it wasn't a serious injury, but it kind of took him off the – runway that he was on in February and January. Um, I would say that I think that their ceiling is probably the Western Conference Finals. I don't see them beating the Lakers or Clippers, to be frank, but we'll see. Uh, They've been very good this year. Uh, I don't want to, like, totally discredit them. Uh, I'll give you the floor on the next guy, though. Cool. Um, I'll just go down my list. Uh, Next up, I have Kemba Walker. This is a good one. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just entirely because of this knee issue, which is pretty concerning, I think, if the Boston Celtics, where he takes – I mean, he played in all 82 last season, comes in this year, plays in basically every single game. He's got – you know, the minutes are pretty – they're strong, and then he has this freak neck injury, sits out of game, and then all of a sudden, like – his knee starts to hurt shortly thereafter. And we're four months later from the last game of the season in March, or will be by the time, I guess we are four months removed already. Um, And the knee is still an issue. And so I just am curious if that knee is day-to-day right now, are they just being extremely cautious with it because he's done the first year of a max contract? Or, like, is it is it a real thing that is going to prevent him from performing at, you know, a, a above 90% level in big playoff games? And if it's the former, then I think the Celtics are in really good shape and they're going to be really difficult to defeat, particularly if Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown continue on the path that we saw them kind of get on before the season was suspended. Um and if it's kind of like a real thing and a real injury and he's just kind of hobbled and he has to sit out games here and there, like I can't even imagine him playing in their back-to-back in the 
the first eight. Uh, if he's also sitting games in the first round and, and it, it, it impacts their ability to kind of find a rhythm as a team, then, yeah, I just it's going to be really difficult for them to accomplish what they want to accomplish with their one of their best players and most important offensive players just not looking right. Do you think that the Celtics, who are pretty clearly in the third seat right now in the Eastern Conference, mm-hmm. they are, I believe, two and a half games up on the Miami Heat, and they are three games back of the Toronto Raptors. Do you think that they would like to try and move up to the two line, or I guess it really doesn't matter? Um, do you think it matters to them if the Heat surpass them uh, and get to that number three line? I, I guess that I'm trying to figure out like h- how much of this, how much of the seeding game is going to matter for for uh, Boston at the end of the day. I mean, first off, you know, who knows what what is a strong schedule and what is a weak schedule? But right from just what we can kind of glean from what the season was beforehand. Miami's schedule upcoming is going to be very, very hard. <laughs> they play some tough teams. Um, so I don't think they're threatened by the heat leapfrogging, leapfrogging them. Uh, what I do think is just organizationally, they're more concerned with making sure everyone in-house is okay. So they're not going to play Jason Tatum, you know, 43 minutes in a game, right. and even if it's a close game, so that they can get a W and get closer to the Raptors. I think it's more about finding your rhythm as a team. It's more about making sure everyone is healthy for the first-round matchup. And I honestly think that, you know, Philadelphia, who has a quote-unquote easy schedule, will likely jump over Indiana and get that 4-5 against the Heat. And that's just like, you know, if you're Boston and you have the three seed and you're facing this Indiana Pacers team that is very beatable, that is just kind of confusing with what's going on with Victor Oladipo, I think you're perfectly fine with that matchup. And you don't need to stress about trying to get the two, which is going to be difficult because Toronto is just like really good. Right. Um, get the two and face, you know, Brooklyn or Orlando or, or whoever's down there. So I, I would say that they're just going to be super organic with it and take care of uh, themselves before they worry about the standings. So the, the things that I will bring up with Kemba are twofold here. The last time we saw him in the playoffs was four years ago. He w- was surrounded by a team that was, let's just be real about it, not particularly awesome. Uh, we, we can just say who the starters were. It was Marvin Williams, Frank Kaminsky, Courtney Lee, and Al Jefferson. And Al Jefferson was only playing like 18 minutes a night at that point of Al Jefferson's career. Uh, Nick Batum was on that team as well, and that was pretty solid. Nick Batum still at that stage. But even so, Kemba Walker did not exactly play exceedingly well in that series. He shot 36% from the field. The last time we saw him, he was going 3 for 16 from the field in a game that they lost by 33 points uh, against the Heat. This was, I, I don't want to say that it was not an awesome performance because he was the guy that so desperately needed to lead the Hornets if they were going to have any chance against that Miami Heat team. But it was not it was not awesome. And it was especially not awesome the fact that the Hornets found a way to win uh, two of those three games that they won in that series when Kemba went and combined eight for 37 from the field. So they kind of won in spite of him. And 
the two things I would be worried about here are Kemba Walker's efficiency in the playoffs and something similar to what you said. You know, if he is not healthy and cannot play a crazy amount, I would be worried about Boston's rotation long term in the playoffs because this is not a deep team. Like, we, we can just be real about that. Like, if they have to play Brad Wanamaker 25 minutes a night in the playoffs because Kemba Walker can only play 25 minutes a night in the playoffs, that's going to be a real significant hindrance to them. They, they actually desperately need Kemba Walker to be an offensive engine who can also not be a total defensive liability that becomes kind of a switch magnet defensively. Yeah. Um, I mean, to your first point about his postseason struggles, like personally, I, I just throw all that out the window because, as you said, it was four years ago. The yeah. players that you listed who were kind of supplementing him on that Hornets team, I literally have not thought about in what feels like 25 years. Yeah. They're not very good. Um, and, you know, this was before Kemba, like at the time, he had zero all-star appearances on his resume. He's made the all-star team every year since. Um, right now, the situation and the context is more like he does not, as you pointed out, like, him needing to be the offensive engine. He doesn't need to be an offensive engine for the Celtics team. I think that this Celtics team can be really good with him as, like, not a dummy fourth option, but if his usage is fourth highest on the team and Gordon and Jalen and Tatum are playing out of their minds, the Celtics are still going to be very difficult to beat. Yep. So I don't, like, you know, he's a really good spot-up three-point shooter. You don't want to pay Kemba Walker to be a spot-up three-point shooter. But for the purpose of what where this team is, if his knee is super not 100% and not working out, then that's not, like, the worst-case scenario. Now, obviously, defensively, you got some things that you need to, to figure out. And I think Marcus Smart comes in and is able to alleviate some of those, particularly in late-game situations. But it just kind of comes back to just the knee and why is it still hurting and what is his capacity to look as fast and uh, as, you know, willing to, to muck it up in the paint as he was beforehand as well. Uh, these are all just like the questions that I have because, yeah, like their offense when he's on the floor is exceptional. When Their offense when he's off the floor looks like the Detroit Pistons or the Orlando Magic. Yep. And, I mean, you can look at some splits and make it look fancier than that, but that's just what they are. So, so yeah, he's he's important. Like, there's not that he was an all-star for a reason, and, uh, and they're going to need him. If Kemba Walker is right, I would assume you think they can win the title. I do. Give me a pitch. Uh, they're top five in offense, top five in defense. They have the type of roster, at least at the top, that is able to just play any type of lineup that you need. Uh, they get good minutes at the five with Daniel Tice, and they have a five-man unit that um, – if they want to go incredibly small and have a little bit of success, I believe that they can. I'm bullish on that lineup until uh, I die. Um, I agree and, with you on that for what it's worth. Yeah, and I, I mean, like, I guess, like, my argument probably sh- I'm burying the lead here. Like, Jason Tatum made a, a huge leap, and anyone who saw him play against the Clippers in the last game before All-Star break or 
the game against the Los Angeles Lakers where they lost, but, you know, he's still impacting the game, getting double teamed in, in crunch time in the fourth quarter, and, like, Frank Vogel is scrambling around waving his arms, and they're panicking, and he's just incredible. I mean, the pull-up threes that he was hitting, it's like, if that's just going to be a consistent thing, then we can all go home, and he might be uh, the, I mean, I don't want to get too hot takey here, but when it's all said and done after this season, he might be the second-best player in the Eastern Conference. Um, so I, I'm i a huge fan of him. I'm a huge fan of the strides that Jalen Brown made this season. Didn't make the all-star team. A lot of people who are really smart who watch the league think that he could have been an all-star easily. Um, I think Gordon Hayward is also an X-factor here. Uh, we don't really know what he's going to look like. He shot the ball pretty well uh, this season, and he kind of dips in and out and is an inconsistent player at this point. Uh, but, yeah, just generally speaking, like, you want to talk about chemistry. This team is just, like, eight years ahead of where they were in terms of their chemistry a season ago when Kyrie Irving was around. And they have a like a real championship hierarchy on their roster now where it's Tatum and Kemba and Jalen and Gordon and like everybody kind of understands what they're supposed to do and why they're on the team, which you couldn't say a year ago. So I don't know if I made the case well enough, but, uh, well, here's kind of what you're saying. Like I'll distill it down. Like their top five is better than most teams. Top five at the end of the day. Like that's, that's kind of what it is. As long as Kemba is healthy, they have a top, you know, if Tatum's leap is real, they have a top 10 player. They have a top 35 player in Jalen Brown. They have another top 30 player in Kemba Walker. If Gordon Hayward is right, they have another top 50 guy. And Marcus Smart's probably another top 60 guy. Uh, that's five guys who would be among the one or two best players on a lot of teams in the NBA. And that's kind of an easy way to pitch it for them, right? Like, I think that the depth is going to be a real question for them if, you know, they, they end up playing, you know, a, a three and five nights a bunch of times. But I think that's kind of the simple way to look at it, right? Yeah. Um, that's basically my point, summed up better than I summed it up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm yeah, I, I, and I think just, you know, they play a smart brand of basketball. They have a really good coach. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on, but, like, yeah, I think they're a championship contender. And... Uh, yeah, I, I really don't know where else to go except say that like Tatum is just incredible. <laughs> yeah, he's unbelievable. He's unbelievable. I, I'll move next. Um, I went with Contavious Caldwell Pope, and I did this more as like a stand-in for the Lakers' backcourt, right? Like at some level, the Lakers are going to need very real production and threats from the guys that they play in backcourt. I think that we all trust LeBron James and Anthony Davis. I personally trust Danny Green to give whatever he can. Uh, He's going to be consistent. He's going to be an awesome defender. He's going to knock down 38% of his threes. Uh, Kyle Kuzma is another frontcourt player that is going to be able to score, at least, I think, in the playoffs. Uh, But what do they do in the backcourt without Avery Bradley? Um, Rajon Rondo is going to come back at some point, it seems like. Contavious Caldwell-Pope has been, for my money, their most consistent threat in the backcourt this season. They actually genuinely need him to be a good defender on ball 
a good team defender who's hitting 38 to 40% of his threes like he did this season. And over the course of his career, Contavious Caldwell-Pope has not always been that guy. So I think there is some pretty real variance there, but I mention him as a stand-in for what are the Lakers going to do with their backcourt, basically. Yeah, I feel you. Um, KCP is, he's like good for what he is, if that makes any sense. Like, he's still just a very prototypical 3 and D. And if you have LeBron James and if you have Anthony Davis, then, and I mean, more primarily LeBron, like, you just need guys who are perfectly fine and streamlined to shoot spot-up threes, to run uh, in transition and push, and to defend and to really get after it, particularly fighting over screens. And that's, like, what KCP does. Um, It's going to be interesting to see just – he has very little experience, uh, like, in big playoff games. And I'm interested to see just – you know, when the lights are bright, if he's going to be able to hit those shots when LeBron kicks it to him. And it's like, what is he going to do if there's a hard closeout and he has to put it on the deck? I'm like, these are some questions that I have with KCP. Right. Uh, That said, like the lineup data is really strong and the Lakers had a lot of success when he was on the floor with LeBron and shooters and Roman and whether it was Kuzma or JaVale, surrounding Danny Green, LeBron, and AD, like, that the Lakers were fine. So it's not like he's taking a ton off the table. But you just wish that he wish that he had a little bit more handle to him. And at this point, KCP just, like, is what he is, you know? Right. And so, uh, so like, yeah, it's just going to come down. It's a really boring answer, but it's just going to come down to whether or not KCP is hitting the shots that LeBron creates for him. What do we think their closing looks lineup looks like? I would imagine that obviously that LeBron, Anthony Davis, and Danny Green are going to be involved. I would think Contavious Caldwell-Pope is going to be the fourth guy in that lineup. Without Avery Bradley, with Kyle Kuzma's defensive deficiencies, I don't know what they do. Because like when you play the Clippers, you're going to have to play relatively small. When you play the Rockets, you're going to have to play relatively small. You're not going to want to have Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee out there closing games, I don't think. I mean, is it really going to be a Markeith Morris? Like, is is that the no. is that the move here? <laughs> it's not, like, not. Spoiler alert, not. But not going to be Markeith Morris. Is it going to be Alex Caruso? Like, we're all in on Alex Caruso is a really fun story that is a genuinely useful NBA rotation player, but I don't think it's out of the question to have some concerns about him being someone in closing lineups in NBA playoff situations. So. Mm-hmm. What their final look lineup looks like is just going to be so fascinating to me uh, on so many different levels. Who can they trust next to LeBron, Anthony Davis, and Danny Green? So you think that they're just going to punt on being big and, and forfeit their identity, really, in late-game situations against the Clippers? I mean, I don't see how you match up with if – the, if the Clippers play Marcus at the five – which I kind of think they're going to, uh, if Montrezl Harrell isn't totally working with Lou Williams. Like, to me, the Clippers' best lineup is going to be Marcus Morris, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, Patrick Beverly, and, you know, whatever player they want to put in the fifth spot. They could go anywhere from a big, like, Jamichael Green to a small, like, Landry Shamet. Uh, and that lineup's going to be lethal, I think. And they're going to be able to defend because they have three of the best perimeter defenders in the NBA on that lineup. So, like, I, I kind of 
am fascinated to see how a Lakers team matches up with that look. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think they can stay super big against that look, to be honest. I kind of feel like that's what they would do at the start and test it out. And I mean, maybe I'm just like talking in circles and you're right and I'm overthinking it. Um, no, I think it's interesting to bring up this point because you're right. This is what the Lakers do. They play big. Like they've played Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee 40 to 35 minutes a night, like basically every game this year. Yeah, I mean, you're you're kind of giving up a little bit at the free throw line, but, like, defensively, you're just going to be so tough. You're going to be so tough on the glass, too. And you're really going to make someone like Kawhi get extremely physical when I don't know how many minutes he wants to play in that role. You know what I mean? So so here, here be, would my bigger question would be on offense. And I'm sorry, I cut mm-hmm. you off. But no. the thing that everyone is terrified of is the LeBron James-Anthony Davis pick and roll. Right. If Dwight Howard and JaVale are on the court, are you just sticking them in the dunker spot and saying, like, hey, don't, we're not going to space the floor for these guys? You are, I mean, that's what you're doing. You're putting them in the dunker spot. You're doing basically what, uh, like, uh, what the Rockets kind of used to do with Clint Capella a little bit. Um, I mean, it's, the floor is more cramped offensively, for sure. And, I think when you, you know, if AD pops and McGee rolls, you can do some, like, double pick-and-roll stuff that's yep. kind of interesting. Um, but, yeah, no, the bread and butter of this team is obviously LeBron going downhill on a pick-and-roll and then uh, either finding Davis on a lob or hitting JaVale on a lob or kicking out to KCP or Danny Green in the corner. Um, that's, like, the what this team – or LeBron finishing himself, of course, which is, like, probably option 1A. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's going to be, it's, it's an interesting question for sure. I mean, to get back to the initial, like part of this thought exercise, which is trying to figure out who they're going to close with. Like I, I have a difficult time thinking that they're going to close with Kuzma. So it's basically like anyone but Kuzma, but then like, I don't know. So like green KCP, LeBron, AD, and then like, what are you doing? Quinn Cook? Yeah, that's, that's kind of <laughs> yeah, what I'm saying. Like, I, like I it's really hard. Know, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's really hard. So uh, that's why I think that Contavious Caldwell Pope, and like if Caldwell Pope isn't hitting shots, I mean, what the fuck do they do then? <laughs> like it gets really hard for the Lakers really quickly, I think. Uh, they have LeBron and they have AD, and if those two are going, they can obviously win the title, like unquestionably. But if KCP isn't going and they don't find a fifth option, like, I really think this team could lose to the Rockets. Like, that game no, earlier, before the uh, stoppage against the Rockets, like, kind of scared me with the Lakers a little bit. Yeah, and that's, like, a legitimate I – don't, I don't think it really gets enough play, but that's a legitimate weakness of this team where if you just look at most teams that win the championship, they have different gears that they can go to, different, like, levers that they can pull, different lineups that they can play. And the Lakers, like – when you have the talent that they do, maybe, like, we haven't seen them tested, really, and forced yeah. to adjust, and that could be their undoing. I don't know. Or maybe they just have so much talent in LeBron and AD, which arguably, you know, you could make the case that two of the three best players in the world, two of the five best players in the world, usually that type of team also wins the championship. So it's, like, this really weird conundrum there. But, like, when you do have different teams like 
the Rockets and the look that looks that the Rockets will throw at you, and then the Clippers, and then or like going against the Nuggets or whoever. Like it's just it's it's going to be really interesting to see how Frank Vogel does all this, particularly with like Brad. You're already thin as it is, and then Bradley and Rondo going down, it it just really really thins you out even more. All right, who is your next guy? Okay, let's see here. Uh, this is a fun one. Um, OG Ananobi, Toronto yes. Raptors. Um, I just have this sense with OG that he's about to break out, and I don't really know what I'm basing it on. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I, I do know <laughs> what I'm basing it on. Like, I love how analytical he is offensively, so it's basically just, like, hardcore layups, dunks, threes. That's all he does. And then defensively, yeah. he's just a total beast, and he can compete against basically anybody in the league and make them work. And so what lineups he allows the Toronto Raptors to play and Nick Nurse to tinker with, it's just like the the inverse of the Lakers is what OG Ananobi allows the, the Raptors to do where, yep. you know, you could play lineups that have Gasol at the five, OG Ananobi at the four, Pascal Siakam at the three, or kind of interchange those two how you want. Kyle Lowry, like, Look at the defensive mind and brain power and just physical versatility and length and athleticism. And I don't know how you score <laughs> on that group. And, I mean, this guy, you know, he's, he's, he's learning to catch and go on closeouts and attack the basket. He's, his handle is just, like, miles better than it was when he first came into the league, particularly in a crowd when he's in the paint. He does. He's like posting up a little bit, a tiny bit, and like not just falling over. I I just I like a lot of what he does, and I don't want to say that he's going to have the type of breakout that Pascal did, where he just comes out of nowhere and all of a sudden he's an all star. But I do think that you know he didn't really do anything of substance during their title run, and I think he's forgotten and overlooked a little bit. He should not be forgotten or overlooked. He's he's a very good player. Yeah, he got hurt, obviously, and had to miss quite a bit of time. And you kind of mentioned exactly everything that I wanted to bring up in regard to this team. They're the team that scares me most uh, if I am any other team in the Eastern Conference outside of Milwaukee. Uh, I like them more than Philly. I like them more than Boston. I like them more than Miami. Uh I think on the Eastern Conference preview I did with John Hollinger, I, I was in on Boston. But the more I think about just the different versatile looks that this Toronto Raptors team can present, like you mentioned, like playing Gasol and Ibaka, like they can go hyper small and still have size. Like they can go Kyle Lowry, Van Vliet, uh, Norman Powell, or Terrence Davis, and then go Ananobi and Siakam at the 4-5. And that's not, like, a super small group. Like, that's a that's a team that has, like, pretty real size and length out there on the court and a ton of defensive toughness with Lowry and Van Vliet on the perimeter and then Ananobi and Siakam inside. Like, the different lineups that this team can present, the opposing team, is just going to be so, so fascinating to watch. I, I would not want to play the Raptors at all if I was in the playoffs in the Eastern Conference. I think they are a genuine NBA title threat that is not being talked about enough. Oh, yeah, they're for sure a title contender. I I think what's really interesting with them is just, you know, they obviously no longer have Kawhi Leonard. And if you look at their margin of victory in how they got to the finals and how they won the finals with Kawhi, yeah. who I think is the best player in the world, like, 
it, it wasn't seismic. You know, they weren't, like, blowing everybody out. So the drop from Kawhi to Pascal as your number one option in crunch time is going to be fascinating to see if he's up for it or even if he's kind of – if they play it more – like uh, they have in the regular season, where they don't really lean on any one guy, and they'll have you know they'll just run a high pick and roll with Fred Van Fleet, or or Kyle Lowry will like release seventeen pull up threes in transition, or or whatever. Like maybe OG has a little flurry, or Norm Powell, or so they have all these different options. And you know historically in the playoffs, that's not really what it is, and you don't really have coaches who are inclined to play too many different lineups in the playoffs. You know, they have their rotation, they have their guys. In the regular season, the Raptors could just, like, bowl you over with their versatility and their coach's creativity. So I do think that they're they're a championship contender. I know I'm, like, throwing out all these caveats now, but I am just really interested to see what they look like when the game is really close with three minutes left in the fourth quarter of a game five. Like, who who, who, who has the ball in their hands on that team? Yeah, I do just want to bring up, too, you know, Norm Powell took a pretty substantial leap this year that probably hasn't gotten enough credit. Like, he averaged 16 points while shooting 50 from the field, 40 from three, and 84 from the line. Uh, That is... Is that good? Yeah, I was going to say, is that good? Uh, Norman Powell's been really good this year. Uh, Obviously missed a uh, pretty big chunk of time, and I think that that's gone underrated with Toronto as well. Kyle Lowry's missed 15 games. Fred Van Vliet's missed, missed, like, 15 games. Siakam missed 15 games. Powell missed 20 games. Uh, Mark Gasol missed half the year, and it doesn't matter. Like, they just figure shit out on the fly, and I think that uh, if they have full health coming up in the playoffs here, they're going to be a really tough out. Um, I will give you the floor on your next one as well. Wow, I'm honored. Yeah. Uh, We just kind of mentioned this guy a little bit, but Marcus Morris uh, and the Los Angeles Clippers, and – I have him here because it's, like, more for a, a, a negative reason than I think everybody else we've talked about. I just <laughs> don't know if he's going to screw things up. Like, we just were mentioning crunch time and what the Raptors will do and who they'll get the ball to. And on the Clippers, there's, like, no question. It's Kawhi Leonard, and you let him go to the right baseline and pull up, and he'll hit it every single time. That's what goes on. Um, you also have Paul George in that team, who's a damn good player. Um, Marcus Morris thinks that he is on that level. And so I get really nervous where if he catches the ball, the ball swung to him with, you know, 13 on the shot clock, close game, crunch time. He's just going to look at the basket and shoot it. And that's <laughs> just like not what the <laughs> possession wants. So I am a little weary of, of him and, you know, in very limited time, the like his his on off numbers are like incredibly impressive on both ends when he's on the floor with Leonard and and PG. Um, but the sample size is so small, and obviously it's not against top notch competition with real stakes. So with Marcus Morris, I'm just kind of like, is he gonna ruin a, a, like this good thing here? Because um, like them signing him, correct me if you disagree, but was just it was it was almost like more so about we can't let the Lakers get Marcus Morris, right? Um I think that he Partially. unlocks I think that that definitely played a role. I think you're definitely right. Um I think he does unlock some very interesting small ball units for them uh with him at center while maintaining enough size and defensive versatility because Kawhi Leonard is a literal bear playing basketball. 
and mm-hmm. then Paul George is six foot ten with like a seven one wingspan and essentially plays the two guard if they really want to, right? Uh, he and Jamichael Green, I would think, could kind of combine to play a small ball center role if you know Montrezl Harrell, who just left the uh, left the bubble to go deal with what seems to be an ailing family member. Uh, you know, hopefully everything's okay, Montrez. Uh or Evita Zubats, who's been really good as a rim protector this year, but isn't really He's not useful on offense yeah. at all. Uh, it, it presents them some very interesting options, and I think that they are all about getting more options. This is kind of like super powered Raptors West in the way that, you know, we just talked about with the Raptors who can present any lineup. The same can be said for the Clippers. I mean, they can go super small. They can go super big. If they want to play like Zubats, Jamichael Green and Kawhi and Paul George in the same lineup, they can go, like I said earlier, you know, Marcus Morris or Jamichael Green at the five with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard playing the three and the four with two guards in the backcourt. So, I think that they're going to be able to present teams with a lot of different lineups. And I think Marcus Morris gives them another option to unlock those lineups potentially. Um, I will say though, like, I don't know that this team needs Marcus Morris either though. Like if Marcus Morris doesn't play well, they can sit him and be basically fine. As long as Montrez is playing well. Sure. Yeah, no, I, I, and I think we should mention that Marcus Morris, when he was on the Knicks this year, basically shot like, 95% a billion percent from line. the field. Yeah. Yeah. It was, and it was, was it, it just was insane. Like out of his mind. And he was a coveted free agent pickup and or waiver wire pickup or I guess trade chip trade. whatever. I, for, yeah. I honestly forget everything that happened. This <laughs> um, but like has not shot the ball particularly well since going to the Clippers. Again, it's a, it's a, it's a small sample. He wasn't there for particularly long. Um, I'm I'm really bullish on playing Marcus Morris at the five for extended minutes. Like if you're against AD and Le- LeBron front court, you're in a lot of tr- like I don't even know who he's guarding there because he can't guard LeBron. Right. So yeah, that's gonna be that's gonna be tricky. Um, and he's gonna have to hit shots because and he's gonna have to hit. I should be more specific. He's gonna have to hit threes because he has a predilection for the long two. Uh, not so much in recent years as before earlier in his career, but he is a little bit of a black hole. And I just, you know, this is where Doc Rivers really, like, makes his money, is getting to Marcus Morris and being like, this is what you need to do in order for us to Okay, so we agree that the Clippers are a title contender. I don't, I don't know that we need to dive. We do. We watch the NBA. Yeah, wildly deep into that one. Okay, so... My second-to-last guy is Christoph Porzingis. You brought up the idea of picking guys that can really only shape the title race. I don't know that I think Kristaps can necessarily shape the title race insofar as I don't think the Dallas is good enough defensively to win a title. Having said that, Christoph Porzingis, as mentioned on the most recent podcast with Dave Dufour, in his last 15 games averaged 25 points and 11 rebounds a night while holding down, like, a very real rim protection role. Uh, If he's doing that, this team is going to scare the shit out of teams in the playoffs. Like, if he is that guy that they can trust to space the floor and as they're rolling out 1-5 pick and rolls with Luka Doncic, that is the team that I might want to play least uh, out of, like, the Utah-Houston-Oklahoma City group. I, I probably would 
I think that they I think Denver's probably a little bit better than they are. Um, maybe just like a very, very small tier ahead. But if Kristaps and Luka Doncic are rolling in the playoffs, it's a significant game changer because not only does Kristaps, the attention you need to provide to him kind of change things in terms of uh, Dallas's own play and just generally being better. It just takes more and more pressure off of Doncic, which I think is the most important thing here. Uh, if, if Kristaps is rolling, this is a very, very different Dallas team that I think is terrifying. I love that you were bold enough to put him on this list just because, yeah, he's like the, <laughs> the exercises to pick who is uh, impacting the title picture. And as you said, like uh, Dallas is not going to win the championship. Um, but they can win well, four out of seven games against a really fucking good team. They could. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. I mean, all of the data is, like, pointing towards them being dominant with Chris Stapps at the five and no longer having Dwight Powell and him just being this, like, defensively it's a little bit more of a question, but offensively, yeah, it's like Luka, high pick and roll with Luka and Chris Stapps where, Luke, where Chris Stapps can, you know, he could slip to the rim. He could uh, stand still and just uh, – take an elbow jumper. He could pop behind the three-point line. He can do so many different things as the role man to kind of throw off the defense. And then you also have, like, him working with one of, like, just a prodigious pick-and-roll playmaker. Yeah. And if you surround them with shooters, then it's just, like, it's lights out. That's why they had the best offense in NBA history for stretches this season. Uh, I think defensively, just long-term, uh, in over the course of a series, they have just so many weaknesses that will be exploited. That yeah. by the opponent that it's just it's it's just so difficult to including Chris Dapps, where it's just so difficult to kind of think that he's a difference maker yet. I mean, this is his first weird to think about, but is this his first postseason? I mean, he played for the Knicks, so yes, yes. correct. <laughs> I guess it's not that difficult to think about. So his first postseason, and the thing about Luca, this is obviously his first postseason as well. Like, it's just a different ball game, And even though it's the, the environment is going to be completely different than uh, it has ever been before, I think the intensity will still be really high. And the need for consistent, energetic, physical defense, I don't know if it's – and, like, on-point, well-timed rotations. I just don't know if they have it yet. So, uh, so yeah, it's – even if Chris Dapps plays really well, I just don't know what the ceiling – that the ceiling of this team is higher than some of the other ones in that category. I agree with you. I think that their ceiling is basically scare the absolute fucking shit out of the Lakers or Clippers uh, if they end up in a series against them uh, in the second round. Uh, I'm hoping that they don't end up against them in the first round, which is, uh, I believe, a very real possibility still. Uh, you know, they're basically in that big group of teams along with Utah, Oklahoma City, Houston, and them that are all within one game of each other. And these seeding games, like, genuinely really matter to this group. So I am going to be very, very interested to see what Dallas brings to the table because I would not want to play uh, the Mavericks if Kristaps is rolling. The last two guys that we have here is kind of a uh, kind of a group effort. 
Pina picked uh, Joel Embiid, and I picked Shake Milton. So the reason that I picked Shake Milton and went like lower underneath the radar uh, for the Sixers is that the reports are that Ben Simmons is playing the four now, and they're moving Al Horford to the bench. Starting lineup looks like Shake Milton, Josh Richardson, Tobias Harris, Ben Simmons, and Joel Embiid. If Shake Milton can actually hold down the starting starting point guard position for this Philadelphia 76ers team, it unlocks everything for them, I think. I am skeptical he's going to be able to do it over the course of <laughs> Minor detail. 20 games uh, if they mm-hmm. need to go as far as they I think they have the talent to in the playoffs. But if he can do it, it just totally changes the entirety of this postseason in the Eastern Conference, I think. Um, Pina, you give uh, the reason why you picked Joel Embiid. Um, Joel is 25. Uh, when the season ended last year in the playoffs, he had one of the most heartbreaking sequences inflicted on his team. He was seen crying going to the locker room. And then he can't he, like he comes back and is worse than he was when we last saw him. Like among stars, I would say he was the most disappointing player in the league maybe. And this is someone who should be annually like out question, a top five player, an MVP candidate. I mean, if you just look at like the grace with he, which he moves and the offensive and defensive skill set that he has, like he should be better than Giannis right now. Like I don't know if that's a hot take, but he should be better than Giannis. And some of it's on, you know, in comparing those two, some of it's on the organization and surrounding personnel. But like Embiid just has not progressed as he should in my eyes and the numbers are like just really down in a lot of significant ways and or static and that's just like there's no excuse for it and I I know that you know having Al Horford come in and Jimmy Butler going out is not ideal if you're a a 7-2 big man who uh that just doesn't make a lot of sense for you but he's just so disappointing to me and so if he like the the hope there is that okay he's in incredible shape he's taking this super seriously he's gonna completely dominate in a situation where he doesn't really have to mentally worry about playing 82 games and then getting to the playoffs it's just all right let me get through these eight in which I probably won't even be playing significant minutes anyway because like we're just gonna need to get the five seed, and that's cool, and I think we have the talent to do that. No one's really that threatening. And then just kind of sprint through the postseason. If he can get that mindset, then he might be the best player in the conference. That's where the talent is. That's where his power is. Uh, that's where his impact is. So, like, if he's incredible, then the Sixers are just about – like, there's no one who can match up with this person. And if he is who we saw, then they're going to lose in the second round. Or the first round. I was going to say, like, they could lose in the first round. Yeah. Yeah. Um, They have the biggest variance of any team in the playoffs this year. The 76ers could lose in the first round, or they could make the NBA Finals. A lot of it is dependent upon what Joel Embiid they get. I do think that not playing Al Horford with him as much is going to help him. Uh, Even though Al Horford has been a good shooter throughout the course of his career, Teams don't treat Al Horford like he is someone that they have to, without any question, we have to close out on him as hard as humanly possible. Uh, 
All of the top three lineups that the 76ers played this year involved Al Horford, Ben Simmons, Tobias Harris, and Joel Embiid. It was just whether or not it involved Josh Richardson, Furkan Korkmaz, or Shake Milton. Um, unsurprisingly, the best lineups of that group were with Josh Richardson because Josh Richardson is way better than that other duo. Having said that, I think that playing Ben at the four is going to unlock a lot of what Joel does because Joel is not a great pick and roll player. Uh, I think that that's like kind of overstated with him maybe a little bit. Like everyone looks at him as this awesome center and that he can get downhill. He's not really that. He's a guy that is best off, you know, catching the ball at the three point line, using that goofy ass up fake that he uses and teams for whatever reason still bite on it and attacking off the bounce or posting up and creating shots that way because his footwork, as you said, is incredible. Real quick, can I push back for two seconds? Yeah, 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 go ahead. Like, do you blame Joel for his inability to be a dominant role man, or do you blame the fact that they surrounded him with guys who can't shoot? I think that it's a little bit of both. Like, he is not someone that has an incredible amount of speed or an incredible amount of lift. Like, he's not some incredible downhill threat that your backside tagger has to, like, stop at all costs to get there because he just doesn't have that kind of speed. Like a lot of the time guys can actually recover to him in pick and roll a little bit. So I think it's a little bit of both. Like I'm not saying he can't finish above the rim and be, you know, a lob catching threat for Ben Simmons or for shake Milton, whoever's playing the point. But I think it's like his third best quality is an offensive player, not his best quality. My theory with Joel is that if they were built for him to be in that role, he would be dominant at it. Like, I see what you're saying about him not having lift. I also see him when it looks like an opposing, on defense, when it looks like an opposing guard has a layup, I see this dude with ridiculous closing speed. I think he has it in him. I think that he, for reasons that are the organization's fault and for reasons that are his own fault, he does not want to do it. And so... He wants the ball on those situations that are low efficiency that you mentioned. And so his numbers as a role man, the pop man, are not great because he doesn't take good shots. He doesn't have a pick-and-roll point guard. He's never really had one of those. You can't run pick-and-roll with Ben Simmons and him. So I kind of just think, like, he could be super dominant in that role, and it's it, he just isn't because that's not how he's utilized, if that makes any sense. Well, it's, it's not even to say that, like, I don't think he could be really good in that role. I think Joel is really fucking good at everything, right? Like, he's just Joel Embiid and is incredibly talented. Mm-hmm. It is a significant problem, though, that this guy is seven foot tall, 250 pounds, has a seven foot six wingspan, and he's never shot 50% from the field. Like, how does how does that happen? And he's not taking – it's not because he's taking, like, a ton of threes. It's not because he's taking uh, a ton of mid-range jumpers. He takes (laughs) fallaways. Yeah, and it's a shot selection issue, and part of it is the teams. And I think part of it is him just not having, like, a crazy amount of lift to get a ton of crazy efficient shots. Having Like, that's why I don't really see it as a case for him being potentially better than Giannis. Like, I understand that he's stronger, he's a little bit longer, like – has a bit more power, but just Giannis's body control and power combination and everything else, he's fucking insane. Giannis is unbelievable. That, that, the fact that that is a human being that exists breaks my brain half the time. 
Um, with Joel, though, I understand what you're saying in terms of dominance. Like, no one in the Eastern Conference really has a body that they can throw on them. Miami doesn't have one. Boston doesn't have one. Um, you know, Milwaukee's going to throw Brooke Lopez at them, and I don't know how successful Brooke's going to be at that, to be honest. And Go ahead. Robin Lopez as well. They'll throw Robin at him. At him. You know, in general. Yeah. Sure. Um, Toronto's going to throw Marcus All at him and, and Serge Ibaka at him, and I don't know if Serge is – strong enough really to deal with Joel. And I don't know if Mark can guard in space when Joel does that goofy ass fucking pump fake that works every time seemingly. Well, you just let him shoot. I mean, it's also had success against him. But, but, but here's the thing. Teams don't just let him shoot for whatever reason. I, I think that like there has to be something in terms of his body mechanics that teams in players that are guarding him genuinely believe he's going to shoot. Like he has to hold on to the ball just like slightly longer than other players do to where they believe in terms of that reaction that you have in that split second that they have to close out on it. I, I don't get it totally. I'm, I'm not making a case that you're wrong. Teams should let him shoot, but we've just seen it so consistently that teams don't just let him shoot. I think that there has to be another answer. Yeah, I mean, I, I think also he's just kind of a victim of his own circumstance here where he's so dominant in the post and he's constantly drawing double teams. But he's on a team where, like, they're not really built for to, like, capitalize off the doubles. And so yep. it's like if you do throw the ball to him down low, yeah, he's an automatic double team. Get it? He's either going to get fouled. Uh, if, if the double doesn't come right away, he's going to get fouled or he's going to put it up and probably make uh, a point blank bucket. Um, but like this, it's just, it's so difficult for him to, uh, to kind of exist efficiently from the post because he's constantly turning it over because double teams are coming so freely because they just don't have enough shooting. So right. it's, it's kind of like a snake eating its own tail situation, I guess a little bit, if that makes any sense. And no, it is. I, I just, I, I kind of just like feel that we're missing out on an apex that is in there somewhere that we're not getting. And I don't, I'm not high on Simmons at the floor and I'm not high on this roster construction to get the best out of their best player. And it's, it's kind of depressing and bumming me out right now. Yeah. I'll be interested to see how the Simmons at the four thing looks. It looked really good at a lot of times this year. Um, especially throughout January. I think that that is the way that you actualize Ben. I think he's like Blake Griffin that has better ball handling ability in transition, not necessarily like Magic Johnson, like he often gets compared to, right? Um, yeah, I think that this is really going to help unleash Ben. I worry about how it affects Joel. And, and in all honesty, how it affects Joel is probably even a more important question in regard to the 76ers and where this goes from here. Yes, because he's their best player. If you were to take Joel or Ben Simmons long-term, who would you take? Like, if, if they have to pick one. Um, if I Yeah, if I could build a team from scratch... I'm probably taking, and I know all the health history stuff, I'm probably taking Simmons, to be honest with you. But it's a really difficult question to answer, an impossible question to answer, because, like, if Joel is healthy and I can surround him with shooters, then I'm going to go to the finals, probably. But then that's just, like, not a given. And also, like, the league is so (laughs) perimeter-oriented. So having someone like Simmons who can, like, probably the first answer on the question of who can actually guard all five positions is Ben Simmons right now, so I'm set yep. defensively with him. 
And then offensively, like, I just – I'd probably play him at the five as a role man, to be honest with you. Yeah. And I'd let him grab and go uh, off the glass, and, you know, we would push it in transition with him a lot, but I wouldn't have him, like, walk it up and initiate offense. I don't think that would be good for anybody. So for both of them, you kind of need the right rosters around them, but – like they're both just so like ridiculously talented at the same time. Yeah, I totally agree. Seventy uh, sixers ceiling. Uh, where would you put it in the playoffs? Um, conference finals. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I. And I. You know. I honestly think the Miami Heat are better, and I would be. I don't know what's going on with Bam Adebayo, but assuming if Bam Adebayo is one hundred percent ready to go, like I think that that team is is really good and a little underrated and going under the radar a little bit because, I mean, I'm just a huge Jimmy guy. I'm a huge Bam guy. I'm a huge Spolster guy. Um, That team just makes more sense in a lot of ways. And so I wouldn't be surprised if Miami beat them in the first round. Then in the second round, like, going up against who their second-round opponent would be, Milwaukee, uh, that's going to (laughs) be a tough one. And then you have to beat – if you somehow get past Milwaukee, you'd have to beat the winner of – Toronto, Boston, and I just can't – I can't see you going through this path. It's just like those teams are all so good that conference finals is where they would flame out if they somehow got past the Bucs. I'm just going to go down with the Titanic. I understand. (laughs) I I think that – yeah, see, I think they can go to the finals. Um, I don't think they can beat, like, the Clippers or Lakers or anything, but I'm I'm just going to go down with the ship and – uh, hope that the 76ers figure things out here. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that has not been the case throughout the course of the season yet. Uh, I understand that I'm being logical, but hey, it's my podcast. I get to be illogical. Uh, Peanut, tell the people what's going on uh, in your life and tell the people where they can find your voice and work. Uh, yeah, so I co-host the Open Floor podcast with Ben Golliver, the great bubble Ben Golliver down in Florida right now. Um, also, uh, co-host of the Winning Plays podcast, so subscribe to both of those, and then writing here and there for, for various places, so check it out at, check it out, oh, I sound like such a loser, um, my Twitter account is, uh, at Michael V. Pena, so give me a follow over there. Pena's one of the best guys, go follow him, go subscribe to his podcast, uh, After a quick little break, we'll be back with that interview with Sam Merrill. Shout out to Mike Pina for coming on the show. Before we get to that interview with Sam Merrill, I've got a couple of advertisements for you. First, grab your peanuts and popcorn. Baseball is back. That's right, the boys. We'll be getting back out on the diamond this week, and while we may not be able to join them at the park, there's plenty of action to be had from the comfort of your home. DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports, is putting you on the field with a shot to play risk-free for a shot at hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you haven't tried it yet, fantasy baseball is easy to play. Just pick 10 players, stay under the salary cap, pile up points for hits, runs, strikeouts, more. I've been doing this for years. It's really intuitive. It's really easy. It's fun to play. Uh, There's no better way to put your baseball knowledge to the test than to compete for a shot at hundreds of thousands of dollars. But if baseball isn't for you, don't worry. DraftKings is offering plenty of fantasy golf action for this week's tournament. Look, 
Uh, the 3M Open is coming. You know me. I'm a gambler. I like to have fun with this stuff. Uh, it was really fun to put together a lineup for the Memorial last weekend. And with millions of dollars up for grabs this week, there's no better place to have skin in the game than with DraftKings. Download the DraftKings app now and use promo code RUN to get a free shot at a share of the millions of dollars up for grabs this week with your first deposit. That's promo code RUN to get a free shot at a share of the millions of dollars with your first deposit. Only at DraftKings, there's a minimum $5 deposit required. See eligibility restrictions uh, and see DraftKings.com for details on which of those eligibility restrictions apply. Uh, The second advertisement here is just for the Athletic NBA show with the return of the NBA season coming fast. The Athletic has launched the Athletic NBA show, a daily podcast combining some of your favorite basketball voices under one umbrella. David Aldridge, Ethan Strauss, Marcus Thompson, Zach Harper, Sam Amick, Wozni Lombre, Dave Dufour, you know, Seth Partnow, John Hollinger, Kavitha Davidson, Jay King, Fred Katz, Mo DeKeel. Everyone's going to be involved. I might even get, a, get in on the action at some point there. Uh, it's going to be a rotating cast of beat writers from around the league in addition to some of those great voices. It's full spectrum, NBA consumption, something for everyone is involved uh, every day of the week. Every day features a new show covering everything from insider news to cultural issues to Deep dives into in-game analytics. Uh, it's produced by Jade Hoy, who's just one of my favorite people on this planet. He's so good at creating products for podcasting that really work. So before things tip off later this month, make sure you subscribe to the Athletics NBA Show, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get to Sam Merrill. <laughs> All right, we're here with Sam Merrill. Sam, uh, as I said at the top, is one of the guys that I think has gotten a chance to help himself uh, as much as anyone throughout this weird, truncated pre-draft process. And it's in part because he got a chance to play in the Mountain West Tournament where he won uh, his second straight Mountain West Tournament MVP. Uh, He's also been someone that has really stood out in the interview process for teams. So I wanted to get him on the podcast and just kind of talk about that process, talk about his game, and talk about uh, a lot of different factors. So Sam, welcome to the show. How's it going? Uh, you're down in Bountiful, Utah right now. Yep, it's uh, it's going well. Like I said, it's uh, it's been quite the time for, for everyone. Um, every Everybody's had to adapt to uh, the different styles and what's going on, but uh, I, I hope I've been able to make the most of it. Yeah, so I think that you know, throughout the season, I don't know how much you pay attention to pre-draft boards and where you rank in terms of like potential NBA prospects. You obviously knew that you were going to end up trying to turn professional at the end of this year, if only because you're a senior. But, you know, you're someone that was like kind of near the tail end of a top 100, you know, throughout the process and is I've talked to teams as other people have talked to teams, certainly because I'm not the only one that has kind of moved you up throughout the process. Uh, you have been someone that's really come back with really, really strong reviews. And I wonder how much of that is due to the fact that we actually got to see you play in a conference tournament. How great was uh, getting a chance to play uh, in the Mountain West tournament again and kind of closing it out in such a spectacular way, the way that you did? Yeah, it's uh, I- I'm just obviously in hindsight, so grateful that we had that opportunity. Our, our conference tournament is normally the week that everyone else's is. Um, yep. But 
just because of a scheduling conflict in Vegas, they moved it up this year. And the entire we we had expectations to make the NCAA tournament, so the entire year we were not happy about an early conference tournament because of the long layoff that we were going to have. But uh, like I said, in hindsight, it's to be able to have that and and have the tournament that we did as a team and I did personally. It's uh, I'm I'm super grateful that it that we were able to have it. So the first thing that I'm just going to ask all the players that I get on this show to do is kind of for the NBA audience that maybe hasn't watched Utah State as much as I have, as much as you live through it, you know, kind of describe your game to people in terms of what you bring to the table. So I think um, I'm just a guy that at Utah State, I, I was the leading scorer, uh, led the Mountain West in scoring my junior year, was I think second this year. Um a guy that can really shoot the basketball, uh, and I know when people look at me and look at my stature and uh, the three-point percentage, that's what they're going to think is a guy that can shoot the ball, and I certainly can do that. But offensively, I think there's a little more to me, and I think that's what teams have been able to see uh, throughout this time, throughout this pre-draft process, is that I can handle the ball a little bit, I can play out a pick and roll, can make some passes. Um, and then defensively, a guy that's going to compete, uh, I understand, and that's what I've tried to to tell the teams is I understand what my limitations are. I understand that I'm not a great athlete. I don't have great length, but um, a guy that's really smart, really going to compete, um, demonstrates toughness and, and tries to stay in front of guys. So um, I know that I'm not going to be averaging 20 points at the next level, but I'm hoping that I can be a guy that uh, one of those glue guys that really helps team win, teams win, whether it's just a starter off the bench, um, whatever it takes to, to help teams win. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think that a lot of people don't really recognize, you know, even I didn't throughout the first, you know, few years that you were at Utah State. Like, you are legit like six foot five. You're not, you know, some six foot two, six foot three shooting guard. You have actual size. And you took on really difficult defensive assignments for Utah State. Like, you were typically the guy that was out there guarding the other team's best perimeter player. What's it like preparing for an opposing team's best player defensively? Yeah, it's a, it's always something that I've wanted to do. I always wanted those challenges. Um, I remember the first time that we played San Diego State this year, and uh, in, in our prep leading up to the game, uh, the assistant coach that had the scouting report didn't have me guarding Malachi Flynn. And I went up to him and said, "Hey, why why am I not guarding him?" And he said, "Well, I think they're if you if we if you guard him, they're gonna move him off the ball, try and get you tired." And and I didn't guard him that game. And uh, the next two games that we played them, I did guard him. So it's something I've always wanted to do, uh, whether I'm the lead guy on offense or not, um, I like I said, I'm not always perfect defensively. I understand what my limitations are, but I think overall throughout my college career, the guys that I guarded, I usually held them either below their percentages or below their scoring averages. So uh, even though it may not look like it, I am usually pretty successful on that end. Yeah, the thing that really impresses me just overall is your feel for the game. Like you seem to really kind of understand – uh, where defenses are playing you on offense, you seem to understand uh, angles defensively and how to kind of shade guys into help and you know straight up how to just slide in front of guys. I think that one of my favorite performances from you was actually not from this year, it was from last year, whenever you went up against Lugan Stort uh, at Arizona State. And, you know, everyone had this hype for for Lugans and you know I certainly did and I was excited and he's gone on to right now he's starting for the Oklahoma City Thunder and what impressed me most is a the way that you just kind of ran him off of screens the whole game sure. you really made his life absolutely miserable and this is a guy that uh, throughout even his early NBA career has fostered an incredible defensive reputation how does one go about becoming as good at kind of running off of screens and getting down that shot prep footwork? How, how does one go about becoming so skilled at that uh, craft within the game? 
Well, it's just it's about work ethic, and I think uh, aside from putting work on the court, uh, putting in work on the court, I think I, I love basketball like as much as anyone. I'm not going to say as much as watch as much basketball as someone like you, but I, I mean, I love watching basketball. I watch it every day. I watch YouTube highlights, clips, games, all that stuff. So I, I try and learn, take stuff from everybody. Um, right now, I'm watching guys like a Joe Harris, like a Wayne Ellington, like a J.J. Reddick, watching those kind of guys to see how they're able to um, prep for their shots, like you said, come off screens, make sure they're on balance, make sure their core's in the right spot, all that type of stuff. I just I feel like that, that feel for the game has come just from loving the game and watching it and trying to not watch it just for entertainment, but, but watching to really learn and try and get better. Yeah, and then the other thing that is really impressive within that isn't even necessarily the off-ball screens. Like you said, like you actually do play on ball quite a bit and did at Utah State. Uh, the way that you read the second and third level of defenders is really impressive to me. You're not just a guy who's going out and trying to get to a pull-up jumper or a step-back jumper. You actually read what the defense is giving you and then try to figure out how to adjust based off of that. You know, how do you go about kind of even just developing that aspect of your game? Because, you know, whenever you came to Utah State, like I knew, I knew you a bit more as an off-ball guy that was basically just running off the screens and shooting and was a pure shooting guard. You developed into a real on-ball threat. So how did you try to go about developing that aspect of your game? Yeah, so in, in high school, I was I, – I had the ball in my hands all the time. I played, I played point guard in high school and for my AAU team. And my high school coach – had a little bit of a college style where he taught us how to make reads and such like that. So I was a little bit advanced in that area. And then when I got to college, I had to make that adjustment just as a freshman and sophomore and not having the great athleticism. I had to turn into an off the ball guy, but uh, I played for two different staffs at Utah state and they both did a really good job of one, giving me the opportunities to play with the ball in my hands off a of pick and roll, but also teaching me how to make those reads and, and repping that stuff out and, um, doing that stuff every day. And again, just watching me watching the NBA and seeing how those guys make their progressions and uh, being able to rep that stuff out has really helped me. And uh, I'm grateful for those two staffs and my high school coaches that helped me through that. So I got told from one of the people on the Utah State staff that you're just like a straight up league pass junkie. Like you'll be walking through an airport, uh, go into games and you'll like run into stuff because you just like have your head buried into your phone. Uh, what is your best story of just, you know, being totally deaf to the world because you're just so into the game that you're watching basketball wise and just having someone go, hey, Sam, we need you to like figure shit out right now. <laughs> well, they might be exaggerating a little bit of me not being able to focus, but uh, because I'm married, I don't get to watch as much as I used to. But uh, I remember one time this year, I sent a Snapchat to my buddies. Uh, it was it was during commercial of the game that I was watching on my phone, but I had a game on my TV and a game on my computer. And so at the time, I also had a game on my phone. So I was watching three games at a time, and that's Generally, if I have the time or the opportunity, that's what I like to do. Yeah, that's amazing. That's awesome. Let's uh, let's kind of talk about some of the fun stuff now. So, yeah, you went to Nicaragua for two years on your LDS mission. What was that like? Oh, it was a, just a fantastic experience. Uh, unlike anything I've been a part of, like you said, two years, Nicaragua, which is just the complete opposite of the United States, one of the poorest countries in the world, uh, specifically in the Western Hemisphere. Um, but just a, just a great place with great people and I got to spend two years, for those that don't know, we, we go out, spend two years, and all our focus is trying to teach people 
uh, what we believe are of our religion, our beliefs, our faith, uh, and trying to invite them to learn more and to, to go to church and, and join the church and such. So uh, there's not a lot of basketball there. I played touch to basketball probably five or six times uh, throughout those two years. Um, and it's, it's hard. It's, the schedule is grueling. Uh, it's emotionally very draining. I had to learn a new language, all that type of stuff. But uh, I really felt like I grew grew so much um, as a person, and that that's certainly translated to the court. I know it hurts because I'm already 24. I'll be the oldest player in this draft uh, if I do get drafted, which obviously hurts. But I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it just because I'm not sure I'd be where I am as a player if not for that experience. So, what was a typical day like for you? Like, what time would you wake up? You know, what, what would you do after that? So we uh, every morning we'd wake up at 6:30, uh, spend about an hour uh, doing a little workout, and then getting ready for the day. And then from eight o'clock to usually 10:30, we'd just be in our apartments, which not nice apartments, very hot. It was usually 95 degrees in your apartment, so you're sweating all day, uh, at least where I was at. And you'd just be just be studying um, about our religion a little more, trying to prepare for the lessons that you'd have with people. And then from 10:30 to nine o'clock. Um, with a dinner break and a lunch break, you'd just be out on the streets. And that's what we'd be doing, talking to people, having lessons, walking around. So uh, 10 and a half hours straight of, of just, just talking to people and meeting new people. And then we'd get home at 9, plan for the next day, and uh, go to bed at about 10.30 or 11, wake up at 6.30 the next day for two straight years. That's amazing. That's just uh, – the fact that you didn't pick up a basketball like more than five or six times throughout that entire time is just crazy to me. Uh, like I can't imagine not getting to do just given the fact that you've already told me like you love basketball as much as you do. Like that would be exceptionally difficult just in terms of self-control, like not getting a chance to uh, do what you love as much as I'm sure that you would have liked to. Yeah, certainly. And uh, like I said, it's it was I wouldn't trade it, but it was, that doesn't mean it wasn't difficult. And in, in some in missions, when guys are in the United States, they obviously get that opportunity. But Nicaragua is just not a big basketball country, and there just wasn't a lot of time. But uh, I think that made me appreciate the game even more. Uh, so when I got back, I was more focused on what I wanted to achieve. So what is it like when you get back? Like, what is the adjustment like uh, after returning to America and returning to what was presumably a, you know, a pretty similar, you know, part of your life that you were uh, undertaking before you went to Nicaragua? Yeah. So from a basketball perspective, some guys, some guys struggle. It's, there are a lot of guys that uh, are highly, highly touted in high school and go on a mission and come back and they're just not the same. But uh, for me, Mm -hmm. I was able to get back to who I wanted to be and be even better. It was I gained a little bit of weight. I gained like 10 pounds, uh, but probably 15, 20 pounds of fat. So I had to get back into shape. Uh, I was really, really chubby when I got back. It <laughs> took me it took me really till the start of the season to get into the shape that I wanted to be in. Uh, from a basketball standpoint on the court, I, I didn't feel like I lost a whole lot. Obviously, my handle uh, got pretty loose. But shooting the basketball, I felt like I was a better shooter when I got back than I was before. Uh, and just just had to work through the nuances and get back into game shape and stuff. And like I said, some guys struggle. I was fortunate where I was able to to get back and uh, played pretty early and ended up starting uh, for the mo- for most of my freshman season. So yeah, it's it's kind of just crazy to me that uh, that'd be an incredibly difficult thing to have to pick up. Like you have to go back and figure out. Like if I didn't write for two years, I feel like I wouldn't know how to even. Uh, start a sentence again. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, definitely. And and I had to not only come back and almost relearn the game, but like Utah's got some good high school basketball, but we don't have a lot of athletes here. So I got up to Utah State and was playing against Division One athletes, and I was just getting destroyed my first <laughs> month and a half there. So not only did I have to relearn the game, but I had to I had to pick up pretty quickly on the athleticism and, and try and make the most of it. So the big thing that you know teams have told me about you is you're kind of at like a different life stage than most people. You've kind of alluded to the fact that you're already 24 years old and uh, you're already married as well. You know, uh, your wife, I was told, played soccer at Utah State. How did you guys meet? And, uh, you know, what are what are some of the things that you like to do uh, whenever you're kind of off the court and getting a chance to be together? Yeah, so we uh, we met my freshman year. Uh, just did it. There was an all athlete class, little connections, uh, whatever, good to know you type class. And that's where we, that's where we met. Not met actually. We were in the same class and I had a buddy that knew her and uh, I obviously took an eye and, and that buddy set us up and we dated for about two years and then got married, uh, which has been obviously great. And yeah, like, like you said, she played at Utah state and she's very competitive. I'm very competitive. So any, any type of stuff <laughs> that involves uh, competing, we love to do. She loves pickleball. I love pickleball. She's trying to uh, – I'm sure we're going to talk about this. I love golf, and she's trying to pick it up, uh, which, as you may know, is, is hard to do. If you've never played golf, it's really hard to pick up. So so she's trying to, to work through that. But, you know, we just – I'm a pretty boring guy. Um, so I'm a guy that just likes to hang out, chill out, and, and occasionally do some fun stuff. So, yeah, as someone else who is highly competitive and whose wife is also highly competitive, like when we play board games, like we'll play Monopoly, like we're in the midst of like a best of three Monopoly series right now. And like we're both like just trash talking each other about it regularly. Is that kind of similar for you guys? Yeah, I try to. She's like like she's hyper, hyper competitive. Like I, I am I think I do a pretty good job of focusing and like if we're playing just a a board game I can chill out a little bit but uh it's it's fun it's that's how I would like it to be I'd rather it be super competitive than not at all so you mentioned golf uh yeah I was told that you are definitely a golfer how often do you get out and hit the links Uh, I try to go a few times a week uh in a good week I'll play four or five times in a bad week maybe once but uh I've really made progress this summer uh I it wasn't very good, but I, I set a goal this summer to break 80, uh, and I've done it like four times in the last two weeks. So I'm hoping in the next couple of years, with basketball obviously being the focus, but uh, golf is a secondary sport. I'm hoping I can get to a, a scratch-level golfer. It's uh, it's a great sport to have right now, particularly during the pandemic, I feel like. Uh, I kind of wish that I golfed still. I used to golf a decent amount in like high school and early college, but I would get too frustrated because again, like I'm pretty competitive and the fact that I wasn't very good at it was just enormously frustrating. Like particularly I was literally the worst putter in the history of like golf basically. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it can be a very, very frustrating sport, especially, especially since it's so expensive and I'm obviously unemployed currently. So that's why I I try and play with friends that I know I'm better than. And then we bet on the course so I can at least get a free round. And I've been able to do that the past few times. So it's been nice. That's amazing. I love that. Um, I was also told you have a weird skill where you can like mimic and imitate the way that other people shoot the basketball or the way they act on the court. How did that start? That's a good question. I've always been able to do it pretty well. I had a buddy in high school that could do the same thing. So we, we kind of compete throughout it to see who did it better. And 
again, like like I mentioned, I just I watch so much of the NBA. I, I can pick up on little things that guys do and and their actions and their shots and their forms. And uh, so you know, you could throw any guy out there, not any guy, but any guy that I could that I've seen shoot quite a bit, and I can make it look reasonably make the shot look reasonably of how they shoot it. Yeah, I feel like that's going to be a really useful skill once you get to the NBA, if only for like early career scout scout team stuff, right? Like yeah. just being able to exactly mimic what someone else can do. It's going to be like, yeah, we'll just throw Sam out there and he'll be able to, you know, mimic what James Harden's doing. Uh, I'm not quite as good with my left hand, but uh, <laughs> I can try. Um, okay, so the last thing I want to ask you before we get into a little rapid fire session is uh, what is the biggest thing you feel like you need to work on before you get into the NBA? Well, for anybody, it's it's hard. It's for first round picks, it's a difficult transition. But uh, for me, especially on the defensive end, so I know I'm going to have to prove uh, that I can guard on the defensive end, and that's that's the number one thing for me. But also, a lot of teams have asked about my body and whether I'm going to be in good enough shape, and uh, so that's probably been my main focus since my season has ended has been trying to get my body right I've lost 10 pounds dropped a couple probably three percent body fats so that's been big for me and I'm hoping that by the time the draft comes my body will look a lot different than it did uh, when my season ended I think if I can prove that one I have the competitiveness to to try and stay in front of guys two that I can uh, handle defensive schemes which I know I'll be able to do and then three that I'm in good enough shape and that my body's in the right spot I think that's what will really help me I was told to ask if you're staying away from crumble cookies uh which is a place that you really love out in Logan well I'm not the only one that loves that. that's a great cookie place but yeah I've I've stayed away from it Chick-fil-a is my favorite restaurant I haven't had a chicken sandwich in a while so uh, I feel like I've done a pretty good job but uh starting a, a really I'm starting to really lock in right now with a, a brand new diet um, that should hopefully, again, hopefully maximize my potential going forward. All right. So rapid fire. I'm just going to ask you four questions uh, here and that'll close it out. Uh, in your career at Utah State, who is the best player you faced and why? <laughs> so I always, the best, the hardest guy ever, the uh, the most difficult time I ever had guarding a guy was a guy by the name of Gene Clavel. Played in Colorado mm-hmm. State. It was my freshman year. Uh, he won Player of the Year that year. I don't even know where he is now, but he was. I mean, if he got it going, he could take whatever shot he wanted, and there was no doubt that it was going in. And he he had a really smooth game. Um, so like, there have been guys that probably were better players, but the toughest time I ever had guarding someone was was Gian Clavel from Colorado State. He is uh, in Turkey right now. Uh, Google okay. tells me so, and a high level Turkish player. So. Uh, we will uh, we'll see if he can get back over to the United States. Now that you have some time on your hands due to the pandemic, you're obviously married. I'm sure that you're looking for things to watch with your wife because there's no basketball. What are you watching on TV right now or movies or anything like that? Well, I just watched the first first and only season of Dave, uh, the little Dicky show yep. that was on that's on Hulu, and I thought that was really, really funny. Um, I'm a big entourage guy, so I just rewatched that. And let's see what else. And anytime the office is on, I'll watch that. Those are some of my favorite ones. Yeah, three three great choices. Three absolutely great choices. Uh, what is the best round of golf that you've played in your life? Uh, seventy six. Uh, it was a par seventy one, sadly, so I was five over. But I actually did that last week. But however, uh, that's my best score. My best um, from a financial standpoint. I played with <laughs> a, a buddy, his father in law, and George Niang, and. Uh, I won a lot of money off those guys. That was probably the funnest round I've ever played. 
Yeah, that's the key. You gotta you gotta find the NBA players that are uh, that have already made a few million dollars and then also are not very good at golf. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, first thing that you're gonna buy whenever you get your first pro contract. Uh, well, I've got an iPhone here that's just completely destroyed. Uh, <laughs> it actually happened. My wife stepped on it playing pickleball and. Uh, I can barely see the screen, so that would probably be my first purchase. I'm not too big of a spender, so just a new iPhone would be nice. Uh, that's amazing. Sam, thank you for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, do everything that you typically do on that front. We'll be back later this week with more, but until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.